Hello, this is Leslie Garthel-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Noah Ben-Asher about torts. Professor Ben Asher is a professor of law at the Elizabeth Hubb School of Law at Pace University. She's been a visiting professor at both Harvard and Columbia Law Schools and teaches torts, family law, and sexuality in the law. In this discussion, she talks about duty and proximate cause and how they relate to the distribution of justice. It's a very interesting conversation and a must listen to for all you want else. Before we get started, as you know, Law to Fact does not take ads. We do not have any money. In fact, this is really a labor of love. But we'd like to ask a favor of you. If you could subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen, that would be particularly helpful. And as always, we'll remind you that all of our podcasts are available and organized by topic at lawtofact.com. You can always reach us by emailing us at lawtofact at gmail.com or tweeting us at lawtofact. And now let's get into this week's episode. You're a fellow torts teacher, um, and you approach torts in a very important kind of meta level, if it's, if it's fair to say that. Not just teaching the cases, but giving an overall understanding of them in a particular context. So can you share that with us right off the bat? So the first thing I teach my students is that we're going to start with negligence. Right. And in negligence, we're going to learn the doctrine. We're going to learn that there is, needs to be an injury, a duty, a breach, and causation. Okay. Uh, and as we read each case, we will ask ourselves what justice is done or not done in this particular case. Mm-hmm. Now, when I ask students what is justice, I pretty quickly reach the result, and we all reach the result, that every person will have a different idea of justice. Right. Right. But interestingly, one else may have a different, when you say justice in a torts class, they may be thinking, oh, wait, we're not in criminal law. They don't think about justice in the context of torts. Right. right. So the first thing to connect is what do we even mean when we say justice? Right. So just to give the class a framework to work with, I give them three theories or approaches to justice. Okay. One that I call corrective justice. Okay. Uh, and basically the question there is, did A harm B? Okay. Uh, such that B will be able to recover. Okay. To use Cardozo's language in Paul's graph, was a specific duty towards uh, B breached by A? And if that specific duty was not breached, there will be no liability. That's kind of the corrective justice paradigm. Right, and that's the purpose of tort in some... Many many think that that is the correct purpose of tort law because we're looking for individual justice. Did did, did you do something bad in the past such that B should be able to recover from it? Right. Second approach to justice is the Posner school of thought, which is economic justice. Okay. Or sometimes known as utilitarianism, sometimes known as uh, uh, economic analysis of law, right? Mm Mm-hmm. In that approach, we ask a different question, okay. right? We ask, was it efficient for A to be more cautious, uh, to take more precaution, uh, such that they should be liable to be for hurting them okay. or not? Okay. Right? And along these lines of cases, I obviously teach some Posner decisions on this. I teach uh, uh, a case on a check on, on Justice Breyer applying it just to the checking system in a, in a bank, oh, right? Okay. Did the bank have to check every single check for fraud or not? And he mm-hmm. does an economic analysis and says, no, it's not efficient to do that. Okay. So that's our second theory of justice, which is economic efficiency. Right. right. 
And our third, which I love to hover over, is distributive justice. Okay. And there I ask, okay, what are the distributive effects of any decision? Who are the people, groups, class, race, gender, sexuality, uh, nationality, who are going to be impacted by a certain decision going one way or another? Okay. Who are the winners and who are the losers looking forward? So another way to say it is that the economic justice and mm -hmm. the distributive justice look forward at policy questions and look at tort law as a way to shape social policy. Got it. Whereas the corrective justice looks at it as, you know, making fairness between A and B. Right. Right? So on many of the cases, I just hover on all three and I say, okay, how would you take it from a corrective justice approach? How would you take it from a, an economic justice approach? Which one is more appropriate in each situation? Can you give me a case and walk me through the analysis of, of viewing it from a corrective justice point of view, from an efficient justice point of view, and from a distributive justice point of view? Like, can you think of one case? I mean, yes, I can, okay, I can think of one case. Okay. okay, so this is a lovely case. So this is a duty case. I love this case. You're going to love it too. So this case is, uh, I, I start our kind of conversations on negligence with the question of duty. Uh, duty of care and I tell you know we talk about how duty is a question for the judge it's not a question for the jury it's a question of law it's not a question of fact and the question is does a duty exist between A and B right is there a duty of right. care uh, and one of the first cases that I teach after McPherson Cardozo's McPherson is Musavan versus David okay this is a case from Ohio from 1989 all right. And this is the peak of the AIDS years where, you know, we now know about STDs, now known as STIs, uh, and we know that people can infect one another. In this particular case, a woman was having an affair with a lover, and the lover transmits, transmits an STD to the woman, uh, and then the husband gets the STD and sues lover. Okay. Right? So the question is, the, is there a duty of care between husband and lover. Okay. Right? Or another way yes. another way of saying it is does the does the lover owe a duty of care to the husband to warn him about an STD? That when he has an affair with the wife, the wife can transmit to her husband. Exactly. Okay, that's a great case. Okay, that was a question of first instance in Ohio in nineteen eighty nine. Okay. Uh, and there was no question at the time that you have a duty to warn the partner with whom you're having sex about an a known or should be known S T D. But the question was, does that duty run to third parties? Okay. Right? Right. And, and it's whether the lover owes a duty, not the wife, but the, the right. person who has the infected person exactly. owe a duty to someone they're not necessarily having sex with. Exactly. Okay. Because the wife, we know, does owe a duty to her right. husband or to anyone that she's having right. sex with to warn him about STD. That was established law already by right. the 80s. But the question was, what about third parties? Okay. Right? And the court here takes the approach that basically there is a duty running from husband to lover, mm -hmm. or in this case from lover to husband, okay. uh, because the husband is the foreseeable sex partner of the wife, right? Okay. But not, and then here I ask the class, okay, but what if there is lover number one and also lover number two. What if lover number two now also has the STD? They cannot sue here. They, there's no duty towards them. There's only a duty towards the husband. Right? Okay. So let me just repeat this. Okay. So we're going to call them lover, wife, and husband. Okay. Right? The lover owes a duty to husband because it's foreseeable that wife 
would sleep with husband. Mm -hmm. Lover would not owe a duty to the wife's other lovers because it's not foreseeable that the wife may be having affairs with other people. Because they're not the foreseeable victims, okay. according to the court. Which in and of itself is an issue, but it's, we'll... <laughs> right, it's ironic, right? Yeah. Wouldn't you expect that like, she's having sex have with a lover? You know, all right. Right. Okay. Anyway, and yeah. so here, here, this is a great place to introduce. This comes early in the semester. We're mm -hmm. talking about duty of care. And so if you think about it through the corrective justice lens, right. you would ask, well, did this person... And by the way, here the lover is a doctor okay. also, of okay. all things, okay. right? So does it, does it, does... But, it, but, but now I'm just going to interrupt you because this is interesting. The duty is the duty of a lover, not the duty of a doctor, right? Exactly. Okay. As a and lover. that's important because it's, you've got to figure out what the status of the person is right. to figure out their duty. And so if you look at it from corrective justice... Right you would say, well, was there a harm? Was there in, an injury here mm -hmm. uh, that we can trace back and say, okay, the husband can point a finger at lover and say, you've hurt me, you should have taken care of me, and you didn't. Right. Right. From a corrective justice, per justice perspective, we would say on these facts, possibly, right, he's having an affair with his wife, he should at least warn him. Right. Uh, if wife doesn't know, right? Right. Um, so that, that would be a corrective justice approach. And it's a corrective justice approach because the goal is to correct the wrong against the person who's being harmed. Exactly. Okay? Exactly. Okay. Now, if you look at economic approach, a utilitarian approach here, the question would be, so this one is not that acute in this case, but how much would it cost, for example, to go and get tested mm -hmm. uh, financially, but also what would be the cost of, say, losing the affair, losing the, you know, losing... The, the, the affair with this woman. Right. Uh, but so, so economic approach probably wouldn't be the predominant one right. here uh, when we're looking at what a court is going to decide. And when you're looking at the economic approach, you're weighing the economy on either side. Right? I'm weighing, I'm doing basically what we teach the students as the hand formula. Right. 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 BPL. I'm, doing, I'm doing BPL. But I'm telling them that, in, you know, as you know, in most of the cases, we don't have actual numbers to put on BPL. Right. So we're estimating, you know, right. what is the cost of taking the precaution versus what is the loss? What is the risk? Right. Sometimes we could put money numbers on it and then it's easy. And at other times here, so what is the loss here? Right. Right. Of taking the precaution it would be maybe losing the affair. It would be maybe losing the money to make sure that you have uh, the, uh, you know, this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the more interesting one for me here is actually the distributive effect. Okay. Of the decision. Okay. And I ask, okay, so what does it mean now in Ohio, and let's say that other states follow this rule, that only husbands or spouses can sue, could be wife too, can sue someone who has given them the STD, but not lovers? What kind of a social message, what is, what is the social norm that is embodied in a decision like that? So in the decision to say that there's no legal duty. What are the con in other words you're saying what are if the court were to rule in favor of the lover saying that the lover has no duty to the husband what are the social consequences of that decision what would be the of a, right. such a decision or what would be the social consequences of a decision that says only to a husband such versus as lover decision. 2 lover 3 and lover 4 exactly oh, okay. i'm sorry exactly yeah. okay. okay so in in the cases you you could think about it either way right? right because i want i always want the students to be in the role of the decision maker right right what are the consequences of my action right uh, and in this case if you say okay husband gets to sue then we who are we throwing under the bus right we're throwing under the bus 
all the people who would have valid lawsuits but now can't sue because they're not the spouse. So by limiting the legal duty, that's what we're talking about. Exactly. About who, to who, by limiting to whom the legal duty is owed, we there are, is a great consequence beyond... Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. So when you limit the legal duty to, yes, you owe a duty to the husband because it's foreseeable that a wife will have sex with a husband. Corrective justice, right, says to the husband, we're going to pay you something because you were harmed in a foreseeable way. But the distributive justice says, wait a second, should we only help this one person Mm -hmm. when there's an opportunity Mm -hmm. to help many people across the board? Is that correct? Or not at all. Or not at all. 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 Right. But the point is, whichever way you decide on duty, you are going to have consequences for a group of for groups of people. Right. And in this particular case, in the Mosevan case, because it's a sex case from the 1980s, we see a very clear message on marriage. Okay. Basically saying, you know, marriage is the norm that we're expecting. Heterosexual marriage. Heterosexual marriage. This is the 80s in Ohio, right. right? Right. Heterosexual marriage. And these are the norms. This is the places where we will extend a duty. But other people will not get the duty. And in other words, these people are out of the domain of tort law. So that's, This is how we kick them out of tort law. Right. And send a message beyond tort law. Exactly. So it's, such, it's, it's basically the Puritan ethos perpetuated through the duty, through rule. The duty rule, rule. Exactly. Exactly. And you, I'm learning how to teach differently from this conversation. And, and in terms of corrective justice, you, you said that right in the sense that corrective justice doesn't care about the forward looking, it's backwards looking. Right. There's one husband, was should he recover? Right. There's Mrs. Paul's graph, should she recover right. or not? Cardozo says no, there was no bre- duty breach towards her. Right. Right. It's the same thing. Right. Right. Because right. tort, it, and it, it, this is an interesting thing to think about too, is that tort law, too many, is about who, between two individuals, right? And as between the two individuals, who should bear the burden of the harm? So exactly. if I cut off your leg, right? Mm-hmm. Should I have to pay because you lost your leg or should you have to suffer the consequences of no leg? And the court's going to look at how I cut off your leg mm-hmm. to decide. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I cut off your leg in criminal law, mm-hmm. right? It's not that I hurt you by cutting off your leg. It's that I hurt society by doing something that we say is illegal, immorally, immorally wrong, what have you. Exactly. So when you look at tort law from a distributive point of view, uh-huh. you're basically looking at it almost from the same perspective as a social justice through in criminal law. You're looking at it to say, and there's something called crim tort which is this body of law that basically says the criminal law, and it grew out of the environmental wrongs, that basically says the purpose of the tort law is not necessarily to recompensate the harmed, but to publish the harm-doer. Interesting. Which is kind of what you're saying. I, I, think, I think that's a really good analogy. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, so let's do this again, but let's do it in the context of proximate cause. Okay. okay. So this is, this is a tragic case, as okay. you know, many tort cases are. Right. This is Fast Eddies versus Hall. It was decided in Indiana in a court of appeals in 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here, this was a case of a tavern that served a lot of alcohol uh, to a patron. Mm-hmm. So there's a male patron and a female patron. They both get a lot of alcohol. 
there is also negligence per se here. Okay. You know, because yeah. they're violating the statute. Uh-huh. Well, was it did they serve it to a minor or was it that they overserved? They overserved okay. to an intoxicated person. Okay. So it also is a nice way to this is how I introduce negligence per se right. to the class. There's a real question here, we'll turn on proximate cause. Okay. And as you know, the proximate cause is really the same analysis on negligence per se and on negligence. Claim, right. Right. The only question is whether there's a statute and stuff. Correct. So what happened here was that these two people are very drunk. And the uh, the plaintiff, who uh, the female, she drinks, and the bar tender asks asks a friend to take her outside because she's really drunk, uh, and then she ends up going home. Uh, so a friend drives her home, uh, and our play, our defendant is left at the bar to drink more. And at this point, he is the bar is serving him, uh, serving him alcohol. He has a gun, uh, and he is known to be more sexually violent when he is drunk. Yet they give him more alcohol. Okay. But he goes home to his wife. You know, mm-hmm. he goes to him to home to his wife. Doesn't find her there. Goes back to the bar, gets another six pack, mm. and then goes to the other friend's home, the friend who had taken the intoxicated patron. By that time, the friend had gone to sleep, right. and the intoxicated patron is in the back of his car, passed out. Our nice villain here takes the woman, sexually assaults her, and murders her. And the question is, is the bar liable, is the tavern liable for the injuries that happened that led to death? So let me just give you a shortcut of the, as the facts as I understand them. Uh, a guy is drunk. They know he's intoxicated. He leaves the bar. He comes back. They give him more beer. And while he is intoxicated because of the beer he drank originally in the beer, when he came back, he murders someone. And the issue is, is the is the... Well, he murders someone who was also a patron at the bar and the bar knew was intoxicated. Right. And had sent her away with a different friend. All right, and that's going to be important to yes. for duty purposes. Exactly. Because even if that person that that per, even if the victim hadn't been intoxicated, would that have changed the outcome of this case? So it, it it's it's a duty question in the sense that did they owe a duty to protect her? So there are two theories of negligence going right. on here. One right. is can they be liable for serving too much alcohol to the murderer? Right. Right? So that's a negligence yeah. per se analysis. Yeah. Yeah. And the other question is, maybe they owe her a duty of care to protect her, given that she was a patron on the premises okay. and was drunk. Okay. And they knew that this guy was there that could have been sexually uh, uh, violent. Right. right. And could have, but, but, but he hurt her off premises. He hurt her off the okay. premises okay. after having gone to his own home and not finding his wife there okay. for some reason. All right. So he right. found some other woman, not... So he this found someone else. This is his wife that he found, right? No, okay, no, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is a third okay, woman. Okay. okay. And so then the question is, should the bar be liable to the estate? Got it. Right? Uh, and so how do you answer that? It's a question of proximate. So it turns on really for the court on proximate cause. Because there's no question that there was a violation of a statute. There's right. no question. So you've got that the duty. There is a duty. You've got the breach. There is a breach, and really the question is, was it, or the way that we're framing the proximate cause question, is, was it foreseeable that this guy would get so violent after having been served the beer, the many beers, uh, and go and sexually assault the woman and kill her? And I just want to say that to prove proximate cause, you have to prove the but-for and the foreseeability, 
But like having the duty, like having the breach, we've kind of we've got the but for because but for him getting drunk, he wouldn't have found it. Exactly. So so it comes down to proximate proximate cause, cause of foreseeability. For the court, it okay. comes down to proximate cause because we have enough evidence. It seems that the actual cause uh, element is met through the okay. but for test, right? Okay. Because if it had he not been so drunk, mm-hmm. he perhaps would not have gone and done that. Got so it. that was not the problem. The problem was really foreseeability. Okay. Uh, and the court goes through an entire analysis and saying that no, it was not foreseeable that a, that a person would get, that this kind of injury would result from the, the behavior that the bar took when it served the alcohol. Okay, got right? it. Mm-hmm. And so usually in the class I get a lot of unhappy responses to that and it's often a gender, in, gender injustice element. You know, why, why would the court not uh, hold the bar liable here? Why would bars not have duties here? Uh, and really, it's not a question of duty. There is a duty towards patrons, right? right. We emphasize there are there are duties of care towards the patron. Mm-hmm. Here, the, here the patron is no longer there, right? Right, and it then turns on on proximate cause and not on duty. Got it, right? Uh, so, how would you work on this through corrective justice? Are you have the class work on that? So, right, you know, did he earn injure someone such that she should be able to recover? And he being the it being the, the bar, bar. Let's be specific. Right. He's it clearly fair as on the between, hook. Right, right. So as between two parties, the bar and the woman, who mm-hmm. should bear the burden of paying for the harm? Exactly. And if we, under a theory of corrective justice, if we say the bar should be on the hook, then we run the risk of imposing on the bar a duty of care that could go to every bar in the country uh-huh. to really make sure that they know what happens to their drunk patrons after they leave the premises. Uh-huh. And some would say that's a very high bar, and others would say, well, yeah, you're making money from... St- anyway. Exactly, exactly. That's just, you know... And so what you've done is you really... And, and this is this is really what, what's important, is that these theories of justice sometimes are going to go, like, intertwined. Right. Right? And so you were thinking through the economic cost. You know, how much would it cost, say, to have a rule in New oh, York... Good point. Right. Say, to, say you have a rule in New York, you have a person who looks vulnerable at the bar, you have to pay them an Uber home. Right. You have to get their Uber home. Right. Right? Or their Lyft or whatever right. whatever the, the taxi is. Right. right? Um, that would cost. Right? That was imposed, would impose a cost on bars. Right? Well, it would impose a financial cost. Financial yeah. cost. So you could take it from economic... So if we take the... So the point is, when you're doing proximate cause, and this mm-hmm. is after we study Paul's graph and we've done, we've read Andrew's dissent about how this is really policymaking. Right. right. When you're saying whether or not I'm going to cut the chain of liability, you're making a policy decision. Correct. Here. The policy decision here could be driven by economic Got approach, it. economic yeah. justice, which would be, how much would it cost? Would bars still be successful, profitable, if they had to compensate all the future events, right. right? Or is this going to be just, you know, floodgates of all the possible implications, Got it. right? Uh, and obviously this is also a gendered case in the sense that depending on who you ask, you're going to get different uh, approaches on distributive effects. So what is the effect of saying there's no liability uh, if someone, if a drunk, in this case man, known to be violent, is served alcohol, uh, and then not protecting a woman who could be hurt. Right. So the the the, the just in, like in the Muslim case, we ask who are we throwing under the bus? Right. Right. We're throwing under the bus the people who are vulnerable to violence. Correct. 
who is tend that? to be women, women it, and men. It tends to be women. It tends to be sexual minorities. It tends to be racial minorities sometimes, right? Uh, Although so, you have, then you have the whole other side of that, which is by making the woman the victim, you're continuing this notion of woman as victim. Right. And if we get, you know, sometimes we can get that far, but at this point, right. you, you, you could talk about that, right? But at this point, if you, we can see that the proximate cause question will get a different justice answer depending on what approach to justice you take. And proximate cause is really a question for the jury, right? As yes. Because it's a foreseeability question. And so the reason it's even that much more important to understand this is because you have to know what jury you're speaking to. Exactly. And what their theory of justice is in order to evaluate foreseeability. And the other thing that's a great takeaway for one else from our conversation, I think, uh-huh. is that a foreseeability line is, and you see this in, Paul, in Paul's graph, is always shifting. Mm-hmm. So I ask you what's foreseeable on this very same case, and you ask me, we may come up with two very different ideas, not because of just the facts, but because of what we value as the purpose of justice for purposes of torts. Exactly, exactly. And that's, and you're right to emphasize the jury here, and that's why the jury selection process is so important in the tort trial, mm-hmm. right? Who is your jury? What's their approach to justice going to be? Will determine your proximate cause analysis. Sometimes judges will take it in their own hands to decide proximate cause, exactly because they don't trust a jury to do that analysis, right. okay. because they think a jury would be too biased. Right. So this is really helpful and and super important, and I think that this really enriches the tort law understanding for one else because you can't succeed in law school if you take everything at face value. What's the duty? What's the breach? What's the proximate cause? You need to really understand why you think this should be the proximate cause, why you think this should be the duty. And I think that looking at it from your different theories and evaluating all three and seeing which one works Uh um, is great. This has been wonderful. Thank you so, so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's so good to be here. Terrific. Thank you. So that's my discussion with Professor Noah Ben-Asher. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks, as always, to www.bensound.com for the music, and enjoy your day.